Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Drones used to be a cutting-edge tool of war, used only by a select few military forces. Well, today, it is a very different story. The skies over Kiev lit up as one after another Russian attack drones were met by Ukrainian air defenses. It still brought death and destruction. Tonight, Ukraine unleashing its most widespread drone attacks inside Russia since the war began. This is the impact of what locals say was an Israeli drone strike inside a West Bank building where five Palestinians were killed. Hezbollah has retaliated to the killings. It used armed drones to attack an Israeli army base in Safad, the deepest strike inside Israel since October. Drones are being used much more frequently in fighting, whether it's for targeted attacks or wholesale destruction. And with strides being made in artificial intelligence, the role of drones in war could evolve very, very quickly. I'm joined now by two leading international specialists who are watching this closely. James Rogers is executive director at the Cornell Brooks Tech Policy Institute at Cornell University. And Ulrike Franke is a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Hello to you both. Good morning. Thanks for having me. James Rogers, how common are drones in warfare today? We just heard a little clip that that smashed together a bunch of different incidents, but give us a rundown of, of, of how common broadly they are. Well, they've become incredibly common. Some could say ubiquitous. If we take the figures from around 2010, then there are around 60 different nation states that had a military drone program. If we look at the figures that me and my team put together last year, then we're at a point where around 113 different nation states now have access to military drones. So that's an 88.2% increase in just over a decade. And that's just the nation states. Mm. When it comes down to the proliferation of drones, non-state actors, violent groups, well, 65 of them now have access to drone technologies. And as we've seen this morning, they're using them to target US allies, British naval ships all around the world. 18 drones were shot down by US forces launched, the belief is they were launched by Houthi rebels uh, out, out of Yemen. That's correct. Yes. Uh, The Houthis have been doing this for a number of years now. When I was out in the Middle East inspecting captured Houthi drones, we saw that a lot of these technologies, although originally supplied by the Iranians, Iran has a bit of a reputation for supplying its high-tech drone technologies that it's been developing since the 80s to a number of different terrorist groups. Well, since then, these attacks have continued at a pace, targeting key energy infrastructure and increasingly those strategic choke points in international shipping. I want to talk more about the specifics and how they're being used, but Ulrika Franke, these are this, give us a sense as to what these drones look like. There's a range, right? How big are they, and how do they compare to the drones that the average person might use, you know, to take photos of their their house or to fly around over the beach or something like that. Yeah, there's definitely a range to uh, what the term drone describes. And that is actually a a bit of a problem because different people think of different things when they hear drone. Um, So drones really range all the way from systems that look like toy helicopters. And, you know, some of them basically are toy toy helicopters or quadcopters that you and I can buy 
on the internet or in a store, a store. Some of them are as small as, you know, that they take off from the palm of your hand. But these can be military systems. I mean, military systems like this exist and they go up all the way to, to um, aircraft that have a, a wingspan similar to big, you know, commercial airliners. So there's a huge range here. Um, the drones we're talking about these days, mostly, so the drones being used in, in Ukraine or indeed by Houthi rebels, these are not the kind of largest types and not the most sophisticated. So not necessarily what, say, the U.S. Air Force would use. Um, but often they are, you know, relatively small. Often they are initially civilian systems. So indeed the systems that, again, you and I can buy in a store and then they're being modified. But even when we talk about drones being used in Ukraine and drones being used by the Houthis, even here there's quite a big range and that makes it a, difficult to talk about um, drones in general terms, and also it kind of points to why combating drones can be difficult because there are you know many different systems where you need uh, different ways to counter them for. James, we've talked about a couple of specific incidents, um, Ukraine and what's happening in the Red Sea. How else are drones being used in wars right now? Well, they're being used in the traditional ways they were first pioneered to, to be deployed, which is to hunt and kill terrorist actors or the hostiles of, of nation-states all around the world. We've seen this, of course, with Israel most recently taking drone strikes to, to target those who have been part of uh, the, the terrible attacks back in October. But the United States continues to use drones uh, for targeted killing um, all around uh, different regions of, of the world, as do a, a number of the US allies. But as Ulrika was stating, there is a, a vast spectrum of different types of drones out there. And I'd say that perhaps one of the most novel and and recent developments in drone warfare is the use of, of first-person view drones. That is a, a drone pilot with a, a VR headset who has one of these smaller quadcopter systems that has been souped up, has been increased in terms of it, its speed, its payload capacity, the amount of explosives it can carry. And these are used to, to hunt and to kill other first-person view drone operators on the battlefields in Ukraine. So that, that there certainly is a, a diverse range of uh, drone attacks happening out there around the world. And in fact, I think one of the more interesting ones that, that happened just a couple of days ago was the use of similar drones by drug cartels in Mexico mm -hmm. uh, to take out um, other other gangs. Ulrika, well, I want to talk more about that, but I could hear you in the background in terms of talking about how these things are being used. How useful are they for militaries? Oh, quite useful. I mean, obviously, it depends on you know the the war and military confrontation you are in and and what your your opponent is able to do. So. Right now in Ukraine, we're seeing a bit big cat and mouse game really between drones and counter drone measures. And sometimes, you know, you have the upper hand and the advantage and then your opponent comes up with a way to counter the drones and you kind of lose it. But that being said, the surveillance, most importantly, the reconnaissance and surveillance capabilities that drones provide at, you know, you know, 24 hours a day, seven hours uh, seven days a week, um, and 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 really at very low prices compared to any other things you you had before providing surveillance. That is incredibly useful. Um, it doesn't live the fog of war um, that we talk about because there are other reasons for why is, why you don't necessarily know what's going on in a war. But it nevertheless really gives you a new level of of surveillance and reconnaissance that we hadn't seen before. And then, of course, also when we talk about armed drones, um, the, the ability to strike targets immediately once you once you see them, um, that is all incredibly useful. And while, you know, say Ukraine isn't 
you know, winning the war because it is good in drones, I would not want to imagine Ukraine's defense without drones. So they are incredibly important. But as I was alluding to, the counter drone systems are are equally um, being developed and it is a cat and, and mouse game out there at the moment. How much of this is about cost as well? I'd heard something that you could get 100,000 drones for $10 million. Um, and w whether that is the correct math or not, the suggestion is that it's a whole lot cheaper to buy a bunch of drones than it is to buy, you know, planes, for example. Yes, well, that's true. Of course, the comparison isn't great because you can't compare, say, a, a quadcopter to a, an, an F-35 um, aircraft. Not that people do that, but but it, it's always the question of what you compare it to. But indeed, especially the smaller, maybe initially civilian systems that are now being used tend to be quite cheap and really very, very cheap when you compare it to other military equipment. So, you know, we're talking a few hundreds, a few thousands, maybe ten thousands of, of dollars a euro, whatever your currency you want to want to use, while military systems are often more expensive, um, uh, ten times more expensive. So, so that is one argument. And also, you may not want to, you know, compare the drone to, say, another aircraft. But what we're seeing at the moment in Ukraine is that it can be cheaper using a drone to make sure you're targeting your artillery correctly. Even if you lose the drone in the in the process, if that allows you to lose to use less artillery mm. shells, which may be more expensive, or you may just have less of, that can still work. Like the math of this can still work. So yes, price does play a role. Again, it really depends on what system you're talking about. But but often it can just be quite quite nice to to buy a genuine military capability for yeah, say a few thousand uh, dollars. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. James, how have you seen this technology change the war in Ukraine? We spoke with a Canadian medic who is in Ukraine, and she talked about you know, crowdsourcing and buying off-the-shelf drones and then repurposing them for, for warfare. How have you seen that change the war in Ukraine? I'd say that drones have changed the war in Ukraine in two key ways. The first of all, you've had the democratization of air power, the spread of, of warfare into the hands of every citizen that wants to be involved in the war effort or feels compelled to be involved in the war effort. And so you have these artisan infrastructure building, um, engineering studios in people's homes, people turning their front rooms, their bedrooms into drone workshops, creating these first-person drones out of commercially available drones that, that have been bought and supplied to them. And then, like I say, souping them up for the battlefield. And so everyone can be involved in some way in that war effort. And those who worked with drones before the war have been drafted in. Those who were estate agents or wedding photographers have been brought in to become these first-person view drone pilots on the battlefield. And as Ulrika correctly stated, there is this cat-and-mouse game between drone offense and defense and counter-drone systems and technologies. And so whereas at the start of the war, these first-person view drone pilots were quite detached from the front line, maybe as much as a couple of kilometers back, 
Well, now due to spoofing and jamming measures by the Russians, they have to be ever closer to the drones that they deploy to increase the strength of their target and the uh, reliability of the drones that they're flying. And that puts them, of course, at more risk. Now, the second way I would say that drones have greatly impacted the war in Ukraine is through the ability of Ukraine to fire drones over hundreds of kilometers to reply to the long-range Russian drone threat. Now, Russia, of course, has been purchasing um, Shahed-131 and 136s, which are loitering drone technologies um, built and supplied by Iran. In reply to this, Ukraine has been building its own drone technologies, such as the UJ-22 and the Beaver drone, and these can go anything up to 800 to 1,000 kilometers. And so it's as a result of this that Ukraine has the ability to send offensive air power strikes from its territory deep into Russian territory, and as we've seen, in and around Moscow as well. This is incredibly important because NATO allies don't want to supply its long-range systems, its drones or its missiles, because they don't want them to be used against Russian territory. That would be an escalation in the war effort. And so Ukraine has to do this on their own, and the only way they can do this in a cost-effective manner is through their own drones that they design, manufacture, and deploy. Well, Rika, in reading about this the other day, I came across a phrase that I don't understand. What is a swarm of drones? That is a very good question because people understand different things um, by swarm. So I would say, the like I think I thought of a swarm of bees. Yeah, no, exactly, and that's of course what it what it refers to. Um, and by the way, the term drone also arguably come from uh, comes from bees. Um, but yeah, a a swarm. The way I would uh, look at it is that a swarm of drones is several drones. It can be a dozen, it can be a hundred, it can be thousands in theory, um, but which operate together. So they're not flown independently with, you know, one operator or several operators per drones, drone, but um, maybe just one operator for the whole swarm or even no operator at all. And these drones communicate with each other, have a common kind of goal or mission, can interact with each other. If one drone or several drones are being shot down, others can fill their, their place etc, etc. So as you already get from my description, this is very sophisticated. And I would argue that we aren't quite there yet. What we are seeing is a lot of drones being flown, being sent over enemy territory. Um, and this is why we read quite often, you know, Russia is sending a swarm of drones mm. over Ukraine. Most of the time, it's just what I would call mass drones, or just a lot, 70, 100, whatever, but but they don't interact with each other. So it's not properly speaking a swarm. And what we're also using, maybe some people um, who are listening to us have seen, you know, YouTube videos of uh, drones being used as a substitute for uh, fireworks, where you have thousands of drones being flown and kind of making beautiful pictures in the sky. Um, and, you know, people also call this drone swarms, but here the drones are just pre-programmed and being told, you know, fly there and fly fly there um, before. So also, again, here, I wouldn't proper, I wouldn't call this a swarm. All that being said, I think swarms is what we're going to see, in, you know, very soon. A lot of countries are working on this, US, UK and, and others. And so I think we're kind of slowly getting towards this, but proper swarms with quite a bit of autonomy and I guess quite a bit of artificial intelligence aren't quite there yet. Well, let's talk about that. You said no operator at all. James, how mm. will artificial intelligence change the nature of war with drones? I mean, the Terminator type kind of analogy here where you have the drone that determines and the robot that determines who lives and who dies. How close are we to that? Well, we no, no, no longer need to talk about how will this impact war. We no longer even need to talk about any sort of 1980s Terminator 
analogies. Instead, we can jump straight to 2020 and 2021 and, and deep into modern warfare today. And we can look how drones with pre-programmed algorithms on board that can control themselves, that can identify targets and can make the choice to, to take that target. And of course, by take that target, I mean kill a new, another human being. Well, they've already been deployed on the battlefield. We've already seen the first machine take that decision about whether or not a human lives or dies. Where, where, where was that? You said 2020. Yeah, so we saw that during the second Libyan civil war, um, and we saw this with Turkish Kargu 2 drones. Now, in that conflict, we had a quite large proxy war going on. So you had the Emirati Alliance on one side that was supporting Field Marshal Hafter, and then on the other side, you had the um, the Government of National Accord, supported by the United Nations and, and backed up by Turkey, who were sending in their drones to support forces on the ground. Now, one of these drones was the Kargu 2 drone, which, as a UN report has now revealed has the ability to have this autonomous strike capacity. And these systems are, are, are spreading relatively quickly. There are reports that Ukraine has developed their own system, that Russia has their own system, that Israel has deployed these, that the United States is developing these. And this is all going on. All of this de development is happening against the backdrop of international promises to control these technologies. So in December, you had the first discussions and the passing of a General Assembly resolution uh, looking to um, tackle the spread of lethal autonomous weapons systems. You have the UN Secretary General saying that it can never be the case that a human is not deciding that kill strike in war. And one of the things it said that President Xi and President Biden agreed upon when Xi visited Biden in San Francisco mm. was they have to tackle this issue of lethal autonomous weapons. Let's hope that they can act on what they say. Ulrika, how concerned are you about this? People have said that in some ways the use of drones and artificial intelligence is another matter entirely, but that this lowers the threshold of war in some ways. The Obama administration was fiercely criticized for its use of drones, in part because the belief was that this was a way to not outsource killings, but that, that there was less contact in some ways with what you were actually trying to do. When you bring artificial intelligence in this, does this remove the human element entirely? Could we get to a place where, where wars are fought by machines? That, that we don't need human intervention and we don't need face-to-face -face human contact. <laughs> that, that that almost sounds nice, right? Um, so th there are a lot of questions in, in what you just said. I wanted to say one thing on what James just said about the UN report on Libya. Just to be clear, I mean, what we're seeing at the moment, and this was indeed the case in Libya, is that we have systems on the battlefield that, according to their manufacturers, are quite autonomous, even fully autonomous, use artificial intelligence. We In Libya, we know they have been used, but it is very unclear, you know, how much autonomy that system really had at that point in time. And so I'm a bit wary of saying, okay, now we have like fully autonomous weapon systems uh, selecting their targets by themselves and killing them. Um, technologically, definitely possible, but it's not entirely clear yet whether in this instance or other this was really necessarily the case. So what James said was, of course, right, but just to give you a little bit more, more context right. here. Um, on the wars being fought by robots, I am extremely skeptical of this vision, especially because it almost sounds nice, right? It has this element of, you know, let's just the robots fight it out and, you know, humans no longer have to die. And I think we always really need to understand that any war, any military confrontation it may start with cyber war and satellites being shot down. And yes, drones fighting drones, but any military confrontation almost always ends with or, you know, leads to some 18-year-old recruits 
dying in the mud. And I really think we need to, you know, put it in these stark terms because this this vision of, you know, let's just have the robots fight it out, I don't think that's that's happening. Of course, yes, we will see and we already are seeing more robotic systems. Yes, we are already seeing a lot more artificial intelligence and some of it is very useful mm. and I would have no problem with it, including, by the way, certain levels of autonomy. But it doesn't mean that somehow, you know, the humans can can all go home and live happy lives while the wars are being fought by, by machines. We're out, we're out of time, but let me ask you just very briefly, both of you. Um, is it possible to regulate the use of drone warfare or, or has that time passed? Ulrika? Uh, on drones specifically, I'd say that ship has sailed. Maybe there was an opening, you know, some 10 years ago when US and Israel had a clear monopoly over, say, armed drones. I think that ship has totally sailed. So many dual-use products. I don't think there's any regulation possible any anymore on artificial intelligence and autonomy, lethal autonomous weapon systems. I'm very skeptical that we will actually achieve a, a binding um, regulation, but mm. that doesn't mean that the discussions we're having at the United Nations and elsewhere are useless. I think they actually really help um, in coming at least to, to kind of common norms and, and understandings. James, very briefly from you, can we regulate this technology? I'm rarely optimistic, but I am optimistic about this one. We've done it before. We put regulations in place about cluster bombs and landmines. We've invented these weapons, and so we can control them. Yes, the cat is out of the bag when it comes to some drone technologies, but in the next generation of drones, there's no reason why we can't put regulations in place, and that's what we're working on with the UN Security Council now. This is fascinating and deeply unsettling, I think, for a lot of people as well, but I'm really glad to talk to you both. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. James Rogers, Executive Director of the Cornell Brooks Tech Policy Institute at Cornell University. He was in Ithaca, New York. Ulrika Franke is a senior fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, and she was in Paris. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.